Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about our deep differences and how we might grow in empathy and understanding of the people behind the positions in our somewhat fractured public debates. Every episode I speak to someone who has some kind of public voice or platform and honestly I'm really on a mission to understand how people have ended up believing what they believe and doing what they do. I'm especially interested, confession time, as someone with some tendency to judginess. I imagine I'm not the only one, uh, but I might be. I have a tendency to assume things about people based on their jobs or their politics or even their gender or their class or manner of different things about their identity. I'm an equal opportunity judger. And I want to challenge myself because I do not like this about myself to listen and to connect with a complicated human person, not just a type. The project grew out of a deep worry I had, uh, yes, <laughs> about myself and in the environment and the way I felt was changing me, and more generally about the ways that our technology and our institutions and our democratic processes and our social norms were forming us, were forming our characters and our habits and our understanding of what's acceptable and not acceptable in ways that I felt were driving us further and further apart. And so in some ways, this podcast is a spiritual practice for me to listen deeply to a range of people. And I hope that you also find enriching. As usual, please do hop on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. It is such a delight when I see a new review pop up. We haven't had one in a little while, so I would love someone <laughs> to tell me that they love the podcast. Frankly, that's the honest thing to say, isn't it? Tell me that you're enjoying it as I put my voice out into the air in my slightly lonely attic room. Um, if you don't love it, you know, you should probably tell us there too for the sake of uh, transparency, but also you can get in touch with feedback <laughs> via email <laughs> or social media. There we go. Embarrassing and needy beg for likes, reviews and shares. Over. To the important bit. In this episode, you will hear a conversation I had with Danny Kruger, MP. You know, I really like the fact that he still called Danny and didn't feel the need to change it to the more formal Daniel when he was elected to the mother of all parliaments. But like Danny Finkelstein, actually, another really thoughtful conservative we've had on the podcast. He is the member of parliament for... Danny Kruger, this is. Uh, Danny Kruger is conservative member of parliament for the Devizes constituency. And he has run several charities with ex-offenders and young people, including Only Connect, uh, founded them and ran them, and then, as you'll hear, passed them over. Before that, he was a speechwriter and various other roles for the Conservative Party and in think tanks. And before that, he did a bit of journalism. We spoke about, because I couldn't resist a little bit, about growing up as the son of Prue Leith. Uh, his conservatism, which sounds like it's gone back a long way and is very influenced by a thinker called Edmund Burke, his conversion to Christianity in his 20s from a completely um, not religiously inclined family and why he thinks running a charity is much, much harder than being an MP, which was music to my ears and I imagine uh, to many others who've been involved trying to work in the charity sector. A little bit of housekeeping. We recorded this interview while Danny was driving because MPs finding time to do long leisurely podcasts is a challenge. So you'll occasionally hear a faint ticking noise. You don't need to worry. Don't be anxious. It's not a bomb. It is an indicator on his car. 
Is that a really dark joke? I didn't mean it to be a dark joke. The ticking in the recording is an indicator. I really hope you enjoy listening. Danny, I ask every guest, and I I hope they've all had some notice, to reflect on what is sacred to them. And this is something that doesn't have to be necessarily religious. It's really just trying to get to the deep values and principles that you're at least attempting to live by. And one of the clues to it is sometimes if someone offered us a lot of money to give up on that principle or to act against this thing, we would feel very conflicted. We would have that kind of instinctive ick reaction to that all right um so it's the great question what do we worship and where do we get our our sense of value from i'll try and answer it in a non-spiritual way to begin with at least and this is my politics as well which is what i think matters in the world is our relationships and i have quite what I think is is an Aristotelian idea that we derive our identity from our connections and from our context. And that gives us our sense of self rather than being, as it were, formed, unique and whole and entire and then influencing the world around us. It flows from the outside in. And so what I hold sacred is the and this is actually reflects in in Jonathan Haidt's work if you know it the book the righteous mind which talks about the the moral foundations that all people everywhere have and one of his the moral foundations that he identifies is what is sacred and i think what is sacred is the people around us and which is why culture matters so much but then if you also you also ask you know what 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 would I really not want to give up? And perhaps paradoxically, given what I've just said, what I would hate to give up is, is solitude and time alone, reading mostly. Uh, and I love the rare moments in my life when I am on my own, whether it's in the car or I manage to get time with a book. And actually, I, I'm, I'm an introvert, I think. So I, I think solitude is very, very precious. How do you think those values, maybe perhaps the first one, but the second as well, have shaped your life, have kind of influenced your big decisions? Well, my, I suppose the biggest sort of career decision I've ever made was to leave politics in my late 20s, I guess, when I was around 30, having worked in newspapers and, um, uh, and, and, politics in Westminster think tanks and the Conservative Party and to go off and work with my wife running a charity that we'd set up that I thought when we set it up would sort of take care of itself and I could just kind of help manage it as it were around the edges of my day job but it it took over as these things do and I and I made it my day job I was really you know personally invested and engaged in the work we were doing it's working it works in prisons and with ex-prisoners but 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 the sort of philosophy that I just tried to um, express was reflected in my view that actually it was one thing to be sitting in Westminster talking about social change and the kind of society we want um, but actually change only happens and the society we want only comes about if people actually put their hands to it and the I felt very strongly that it wasn't enough to, I was writing David Cameron's speeches at the time 
And I thought this is so far from the actual reality of what we're even talking about. Because it was, you know, it was the early days of the big society agenda. I thought, is, is there something wrong here that I'm sitting here writing about it when I actually could, could and should be doing it? Um, and I guess it was the relationships that I had with a group of ex-prisoners and with our volunteers and the team, and obviously with Emma, that made me realise this matters more than getting the national policy framework right. Um, when and Anyway, we were in opposition, so I wasn't even in a position to influence the real policy framework. It was all very abstract. Thanks. Uh, we will definitely come back to Only Connect, that charity, and the those kind of twin threads of politics and the third sector, the charity sector that have so framed your career. But first, I want to just get a sense of where you've come from, what you've been formed by. And I'd love you to just say a little bit about your childhood and particularly any big ideas, philosophical, political, religious that you think have helped make you the man you are today. Well, my my childhood was very comfortable and secure. And uh, my parents made money and uh, they set up a catering company and did very well. So I had a very privileged upbringing in Oxfordshire. Uh, went to boarding school and uh, always had a sense of security behind me, both family-wise, you know, my parents and my sister and I were always a very safe, secure unit um, and, and and obviously materially as well. The biggest sort of philosophical or kind of intellectual influence on me, I guess, was naturally enough, my parents' worldview, which was very um, uh, honourable, but, but, but materialist, not, not, not in the sense of being about money, but completely non-spiritual. So they were kind of, my parents were sort of post-war generation, you know, 50s and 60s, when I think there was a great reaction against intellectual extremism and a sense of the possibilities of of the future as long as people didn't get let crazy ideas run away with them and so well for whatever reasons both my parents were atheists uh, my mother's still with us she's still an atheist sadly um and both uh r- really believed in the potential of humanity to get things right if we just organize ourselves well um and they brought me up to have a strong sense of social duty and commitment obligation uh honesty and rationality reason uh a respect for evidence and science and what can be proved and um and I guess that is, you know, that, that that's very much part of what I believe too. Um, but I, in my 20s, um, changed my worldview. Um, and uh, and, have, and now have a different perspective from them. But I guess they always have a, um, influenced me to... To respect the sort of Western tradition, I guess, of, 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 of reason and honesty and social obligations. And your 
Mum is obviously Prue Leith, who is now extremely famous for Bake Off. But having read a bit about her, it sounds like she also had quite a public profile in your childhood. And I, it, it, it astonishes me how much she got done, really. You know, business and restaurants and columns and television profile. How much were you aware as a child of this kind of public bit of your mum? Yeah, pretty aware because you know it sort of it, it, it was very, it was part of our childhood. My mum being on TV and and because she's in cooking, catering, it was the, the whole business of her work was quite intermingled with sort of family life and with private life. So she would work in the evenings, but then she'd be at home in the day. She would do often do TV um, uh, recording from the from home. Uh, wow. Uh, there would be, you know, she was she was in the business of, and she was writing about home cooking at home and cooking for children and so on. So it wasn't as if her work was some strange thing that, you know, your parents did in a faraway office in an industry you didn't understand. And you were sent to Eton, which I think has quite a two-dimensional brand <laughs> associated with it in the public eye. Um, what was your experience of it like? I didn't enjoy it much at the beginning because it's a big place and my I didn't have friends and family who'd been you know it wasn't in my my parents and grand you know hadn't generations of Etonians didn't I didn't have generations of Etonians behind me didn't know the culture so I had to understand it um and I was a shy little boy so it, it took a couple of years before I was happy but but I was in the end and the great thing about it uh and everyone boasts about their school if they liked it. Um, but my, what I think is good about Eton is it makes it, it really um, brings out the individual. It, it, it honours individuality, and you are encouraged to find your own path. And there's always obviously these great opportunities for you to take part in activities. So it, I think by the time I was you know 15 or so, when other boys also begin to recognise individuality rather than being the sort of appalling kind of herd mentality of the early teens. Uh, I I enjoyed it. And, you know, I, I, I respect the place. I got a lot out of it and um, will always be grateful for what it did for me. You went to university and uh, fairly soon, it seems, conservatism and politics became a kind of live interest to you what what was the draw there what did you fall in love with well I had always been interested in politics since I was at school I don't really know why but and I was always a conservative you didn't um, have an, a, a youthful a youthful left-wing period no, like many people seem no, to have no 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 I didn't um I think I was a horrible little Thatcherite in the <laughs> late 80s um and then what? And then and then at university, I did a bit of bit of student politics, not much. Um, but what really, I, I think, shaped my ultimate my ultimately shaped my politics more than anything was uh, when I it was at Edinburgh University. I uh, for my undergrad, I, I, I for a magazine that I'd set up, I interviewed Conor Cruz O'Brien, Irish intellectual historian politician. Who, who was over for a visit and his and I in preparation for that interview I read his biography of Edmund Burke it's called The Great Melody and 
that was my introduction to Burke. And that more than anything, I think, that, and then obviously I, I, I went on, I did a postgrad uh, DPhil studying Burke in detail. And what Burke gave me was a framework for what I'd felt already, which was that the rather thin doctrine of Thatcherism or of what had been, you know, come to be seen as Thatcherism, which is a, which is the caricature, which is just, you know, free markets, personal freedom, uh, and a sort of Darwinian uh, idea that, that, you know, everything will be best if we just leave everybody alone to fight it out among themselves. That that was a very thin and unsatisfactory account of how we work and what makes us tick, and that a society that is prosperous will actually be built on a much more a much richer uh, texture of social relationships and obligations, and we have duties to each other as well as to our ancestors and our descendants and to the people around us that go beyond these this purely private or selfish idea of uh, of liberal individualism. And yet we shouldn't trust big government either because that isn't the way to manage these relationships. Mm. Um, so, so Burke, you know, in the 1770s, 70s, 80s, 90s articulated this set of ideas so beautifully and so well that I was hooked and that's so I became a Burkean and that's the kind of Tory I am now um and after actually while I was still at Oxford doing the postgrad I got involved with um doing journalism and and ended up doing political commentary and journalism for a bit and then and then gone to think tanks and so on and you were eventually a speechwriter and I feel like speechwriters are the sort of unseen cogs in the machine of politics. The only real association I have is, is with Toby from the West Wing, who's the kind of fictional archetype of a political yeah. speechwriter. What was the best and worst thing about being a speechwriter? And can you just give us a sense of, sense of the actual job? Well, it's a very unsatisfactory one. Um, I mean, there's a great, there's a sort of privilege, I guess, in being in the room with the with the politicians who are going to be making decisions or, or, or not my case because we're in opposition, um, trying to influence them. The more important the speech, the, the worse the speech writing process is because it uh, has to go through so many different hands and different voices try and interfere. And actually what ends up happening because the way the, the media cycle is, is that the speech is really only the sort of vehicle for a couple of sound bites, which is what matters. And they those sound bites are often written possibly by somebody else, by the speech maker, the politician, or their strategist or commerce person, uh, you know, the night before, and then briefed out to the media. And then the politician has to then recite this long speech to an audience of people who, frankly, are only interested in this soundbite anyway, after the news has been announced, after it's been in the papers. So it's all a very strange and, as I say, unsatisfactory uh, arrangement. And as a literary form, I think we've, we, you know, we don't make great speeches anymore for lots of strange reasons. Um, I was trying to think so, of the last one I read or watched yeah, in full, and well, I, I can't. Great speeches are... 
No, well, I mean, you, I think the, the best speeches, as, and the other problem with it, you know, the, the politicians themselves are much better when they speak without a script or just with some notes that they've written themselves. Uh, or if they've really written the speech and then properly learnt it, you know. So, you know, I wrote, or, you know, had a big hand in David Cameron's 2006 party conference speech, which was the one he delivered without any notes, it was when Gordon Brown was just about to call an election, but then we, we sort of scared him off, uh, and by with a great party conference. And and that speech that David gave was very much his work. I mean, I'd had a hand in it. Steve Hilson had had a bigger hand in it, but David really and he learnt it and he recited it as if it were properly off the cuff, as it kind of half was. You know, it was really him. Yeah. Um, so the less the the speechwriter, the better, uh, and. So I I think ultimately it's a it's a bit of a bogus uh, profession and you know as a politician myself now I would not want to be giving speeches written by other people um, mm-hmm. even if you had Toby Ziegler uh, yeah, yes uh, writing them I mean oh that said you know you do get obviously get great I also think the American tradition is different they have a tradition of of oratory. Um, which you obviously get with Obama, particularly um, George Bush as well gave great great speeches. Um, and there's something about you know, I think it was in the West Wing talking about altitude speeches, make it higher. Yeah. Which in in the UK we don't do altitude. You know, no. people think it's ridiculous if you. Try we get and do cynical quite fast, don't we? Soar, yeah, soaring rhetoric doesn't seem to play in the British context although when you then you hear Zelensky quoting Churchill you realize you know we have got a tradition of oratory Um, and you alluded to this big change that happened in your 20s of not no longer calling yourself an atheist how did that come about oh that's a very simple story my this girl Emma who I'd met um uh and was going out with she started praying for me and uh and we had a lot of conversations. I'd always been interested. I'd never been an anti, you know, Christian. I'd always found it interesting and important. Um, and actually, as I first started working for in, in Westminster in a think tank, uh, I'd gone to meet Tim Montgomery and Peter Franklin, who were running the Conservative Christian Fellowship out of a basement room in Conservative Central Office. And um, been and, and I remember had a really long, intense conversation with them about faith and politics. But for me, as a non-believer, but fully recognizing how important it is, um, and uh, how valuable, and how and 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 I think I recognized even then how our politics, conservatism, but other traditions as well, are rooted in Christianity, and they don't make a lot of sense without recognizing that. So I was I was sort of halfway there intellectually, and then I then then what and then Emma praying for me, and me getting more and more interested, and then the, the change happened between starting Mere Christianity by by C.S. Lewis and finishing it. I don't know quite how or at what point, but I started that book thinking I'm interested in this from a non-believing perspective, and finishing it thinking hmm. I believe, and all I can say is. You know, I'm no better as a person now than then, but I have a sense of purpose and and selfishly, I'm a lot happier in myself. 
how much do you think that awakening, that spiritual change in you was related to the the starting of Only Connect? And I'd love to just hear a little bit more, I guess, about the passion behind that or the um, the drive to work with ex-prisoners and that, that particular group. Well, that, again, I'd always been interested for some reason I can't really account for in prisons, you know, justice policy. Uh, and when Emma, so I met Emma um, through friends and she was a teacher and, but also had since university been volunteering with various prison uh, charities, working in the arts. So she's a, she was a drama teacher, uh, English and drama. And she, she did a lot of, uh, theatre projects and arts projects with prisoners as a volunteer um, and then in fact worked for the BBC doing some literacy workshops in prisons as well using theatre techniques and we are, she wanted to carry off that BBC content and she didn't want to go back to teaching she wanted to do the prison work full time and I said let's I'll help you set a charity up to so, to, so we can raise some money you can be employed and that's the work you can do um, and I will, I'll, I'll do the do the back office, you know, I'll do the admin and the fundraising and so on. Um, and famously said to her, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll set it up and then it'll more or less run itself. And uh, which is not how anybody who's been involved in charities uh, knows things work. Uh, they're incredibly demanding. Um, but so I, so I guess I, I slightly kind of stumbled into it. I, I, well, I kind of fell down a slippery slope into the, into the full-time work. Um, I, I started because I was interested. I had this sense, as I said to you, that being privileged and interested in social policy uh, wasn't really enough if you had no direct experience of the world you're trying to work in. Then it just became, you know, in the compulsive way these things do, took over. It's just so hard running a charity, so hard. Things are so difficult, any charity. And then you're working in this really dysfunctional space of the prison system and the probation system and you're working with some people who are pretty dysfunctional um which includes the volunteers by the way i mean every, everyone involved you know from me and emma down um you know you, you bring your bring your it's, it's a messy business uh charity work and, and and you're working with messy people and nothing is straightforward so it's really really challenging work um did your background as um forgive me that I'm I'm really interested in how we connect across the tribes that people ascribe us to and the boxes that we get put in and there's an assumption I think that the charity sector space is very left leaning and progressive yeah. and you were working with a lot of young people many of whom who had had very tough backgrounds from all different language groups from all different races and you were coming in as someone who you know presents as the old Etonian that you are in terms of that kind of shorthand that we do to each other of putting each other in putting each other in boxes what did you learn about navigating those differences the way we handle privilege or underprivilege what 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 was that like yeah well there's a lot there um but 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 you know, it, it's, it, it's mostly middle class white people who worry about um, those issues, in my experience. Uh, and and also, ultimately, a, a relationship is, is a relationship. And once you've got to know somebody, you see beyond the presenting 
characteristics of class and color and background. So, uh, I mean, I think there's a there's a massive distrust among people in prison of anybody who coming in from the sort of the straight world, the the, the official world, whether they're charity or 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 statutory. I mean, there's a definite advantage of saying you're a charity, you're doing it because. You, you want to, not because you, you know you have to, and you don't have any power over them. Um, but still, the, the, the distinction isn't that strong. And anybody who is coming in from a sort of professional middle class world to provide, whether it, you know, provide help, is distrusted, and that has to be worked on and got through, uh, and is never totally dispelled. So it is it is tricky issues around power, but issues of kind of class and background, I, I think those don't really apply. So it's not that I, I think dealing with the client group, as it were, isn't particularly tricky or an issue. The but you're right about the um the the the, the colleagues, I mean the people working in the sector, in the charity sector, yeah. I mean, you know, ninety percent left leaning. Which is regrettable, uh, and there's lots of interesting reasons for that. Um, I always regret it because I think that actually, charity—it isn't a great word—but social action, sense of obligation to the people around you, uh, rolling the sleeves up and getting stuck in, not relying on government to fix social problems. To me, these are quite conservative principles, um, and. Uh, it's a shame that the, the our politics is such that so many uh, charity leaders, particularly uh, and 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 frontline workers, distrust my party, and that's that's our fault. You know, that's my fault as much as uh, my party's fault as much as anything. Um, it doesn't seem right. I just want to pick up a thread from your conversion to bring in here, which was a quote that I came across that you said that I'd just love you to say more about because I find it very intriguing. You said conservatism without Christianity is just snobbery and spivery, which you may or may not still agree with. I don't know. But unpack what you were grasping towards there for me. Oh, yeah. No, I do. I mean, it's quite provocative. It's a bit offensive because there's loads of conservatives who aren't Christians. But I do. Well, as I said, I think all our politics derives from Christianity and the Tom Holland on that, you know, that it doesn't make sense if you don't um, recognise the Christian roots of, of which obviously applies to liberalism, socialism, as well as to conservatism. But conservatism, I think, has a particular, as it were, in my set. I mean, it's just my my perspective. You know, all all credit to people, many great conservatives who don't believe, but but it doesn't make sense to me otherwise. And and I fear that with, if you don't have a so Chris, the reason I suppose I would say. That I said that is that Christianity, as as all politics should be, but really, really is rooted in the, in a notion of fallibility. We are fallen, and if you don't accept that we're fallen, then the articles of conservatism, which are on one hand about the rec- recognition of tradition uh, and settlement uh, and convention. If you don't realise that you, we need that because we are fallen and we like to make mistakes if we don't respect our ancestors, then all you're doing is having a kind of snobbish attachment to the past and to the way things are. So to be a, 
to be a traditionalist without being a Christian who recognizes human fallibility feels to me just like snobbery. And likewise, if you're a conservative, just did I say conservative without believing in fallibility? If you're a conservative who believes in 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 free markets, as I do, as we should, uh, and in enterprise and in the, uh, the 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 rightful yearning and search for prosperity and material improvement. If you do that without Christianity, without recognizing our obligations to others, to to to, to society and to the planet, and if you don't have a moral framework around your uh, belief in enterprise, then you're just a spiv uh, who's just 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 on the make. I have to look it up, uh, actually, Danny. Can you just define spivery for us? Uh, well, a, a, a spiv is a, well, it's not a, maybe it's an out-of-date word now. Uh, it used to be very common. It just meant a sort of immoral, um, someone, someone who's on the make, someone, who, someone who's just trying to, who's quite flashy, just believes in money for its own sake, totally materialistic, selfish, um, and, and a bit of a cheat as well you know not not being honest uh in in their dealings so you know we believe in 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 enterprise and, and letting people make money we really believe in that but if you if you don't have a moral framework around that um then your conservatism is just is just spivery so yeah i think conservatism without christianity is at risk of being just snobbery and spivery thank you and after quite a long time of wrestling through those challenges you've described of leading in the charity sector, politics called you back. And what were the threads were you pulling on when you decided to go from the grassroots back to the kind of eagle's eye view of, of helping shape policy? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think I always thought I would. I was just surprised at how long it took. And, and you know, so it was best part of 10 years uh, away in which I did, did, you know, I probably the best work I'll do because although it wasn't always successful, particularly with the prisons work, because after setting up Only Connect, and that now carries on, and I share that charity now, um, I, I set up a, a, a project working with children and young people trying to prevent kids getting into trouble that would lead them to prison later. And that work carries on as well. And it's been very successful because I handed that over quite quickly to a brilliant woman who, who runs it now. Louise Mitchell. And I got to the point where in both cases, I was able to hand the charities on to more capable chief executives. Uh, and and it was around the, around Brexit time, just after Brexit, I just became, found myself, having been interested 10 years earlier, much more in the grassroots, the actual work itself, I became increasingly interested in the bigger picture and the national story and you know what kind of country we want to be post-Brexit. So, but and my vision of obviously nothing ever, you know, you never really change your mind. Uh, my my vision remains and remains that we need a more social, more local, more organic, more relatable, relational uh, politics, and that's what I think Brexit really was a yearning for. It wasn't just about breaking the grip of Brussels; it was about breaking the grip of London and of kind of global finance as well, and and creating a more a more sustainable and more r- r- relational uh, society. So I, I, I found myself uh, getting involved again and ended up working when Matt Hancock was um, 
culture secretary before he became health secretary, I went in to work in that department, the, the culture department for culture, because that looks after civil society. And I was the government's civil society advisor for a, a year or two. Uh, and I wrote a strategy for the government, which is very proud to do um, in 2018, I think, uh, setting out how government will support civil society, so charity and faith groups and community groups. Uh, and and then when Boris then when Boris became PM, I was asked to go into number ten with him, and uh, uh, and there we go. And you, and I, I find it fascinating that you talk about leading a charity as a hard job, given that you're now an MP, which I know from being in and around Westminster a bit is just utterly relentless. And you know you're very kindly uh, squeezing us in, talking in on on a car journey, but. Aside from the sheer kind of hours and pressure of being an MP, I worry that the way we set up our politics is just adversarial all the way down. And we, even in, you know, including the architecture of the building in which you work, where you're going to face each other like armies lined up for battle. And we've had the deaths of two MPs in the last um, few years what is your experience of what certainly feels from the outside like a very divided and very divisive and very fractious political life? How do you, how does it affect you? How do you navigate it? Well, actually, I don't think the problem is in Parliament at all. Um, I mean, you're right. It's a confrontational and adversarial uh, by nature. Um, I, I mean, you might not know that the reason for that is that uh, the House of Commons in the old days, before the Parliament burnt down in 1834, was was based in St Stephen's Chapel, the chapel of the Palace of Westminster. Uh, and because it's a collegiate foundation, Westminster, they, the, the pews face each other, like in the college chapel, rather than facing forward, like in a parish church. So very naturally, people took the two sides of the aisle. But I think that reflects the sort of binary nature of our minds. We want there to be good guys and bad guys, for and against. Uh, and it, and what I, th- I think is valuable because it enfranchises the public. The public get to see two people arguing, always taking opposite views. That enables the public to make a choice. And the result of it, I think, is actually through the dialectic process, which is often argumentative by nature uh, and confused but we make progress this way through this binary fight so i don't i don't think there's anything wrong with that nor do i think there's a problem well not not a not an enormous one in the culture of mps and as you know elizabeth you know people from either side talk very civilly to each other actually have friendships certainly collaborate on issues that affect their constituents and on policy and even when you get people yelling at each other across the dispatch box shadow, you know, opposite front front benches, they then go out and behind the speaker's chair, they have a good chat uh, and call each other by their first names and actually are human beings to each other. Uh, so I think the, poli- the parliamentary end isn't the problem. The problem is social media, online, and, and it's a culture war, you know, which is meaningful. It's a real thing. You know, there is, there, it's a religious, we're in a religious war over what it is to be human. And that is agitating society in the West in a, in a way that really is comparable to the 17th century. And we just hope it doesn't lead to the same sort of uh, 
actual conflict, physical conflict. But but we are we are there's some really profound arguments going on in our culture, and that 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 blows into social media, and then we get a whole lot of abuse online and people writing to us very offensively and aggressively as well. But actually, Parliament is the, is a great barrier against the personal abuse because you're among colleagues, you've got a staff team, you've got doorkeepers. Once you get inside there, even though, yes, it's the cockpit of conflict politically, it's actually a, quite a safe sanctuary. Uh, and personally, I'm fine with it. So I, I can't speak for others. I think other people might find it more distressing. I'm also in a lovely safe seat where more, more or less everyone's nice to me. Uh, not everybody, but you know, I have a nice time in in my constituency as well as in Westminster. So I, I really have nothing to complain about on a personal level. What have you learnt about what helps us? Whether it's with your colleagues in Parliament, whether it's when you do encounter someone in public who really does think Tory MPs are all scum or disagrees with you deeply on a point of principle. What are the skills and habits that we all can be growing in to, I guess, be part of the solution rather than part of the problem for that quite distressing slide that you've noted? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm sort of blessed or cursed with the, I, I always, I mean, this sounds arrogant. I always think the other person's got a point. Even though I have, I think I do have strong convictions, I'm not, I'm not absolutely convinced I'm right. I might well be wrong about Brexit and about trans rights and about social policy, you know, and, and all sorts of things that I feel very strongly about and really wish that, you know, want, want, want a certain thing to happen. And in the culture war I mentioned, I think that, you know, one side has got to win it. There isn't, there isn't going to be some compromise. But that doesn't mean you can't respect and accommodate the other side. One thing, I mean, if you ask practically what I do, I off, I, I, something I learned working with prisoners and ex-offenders who often get, you know, pretty irate and emotional and angry and feel there's real injustice done against them in the world is you just got to honour their feelings, even if you don't agree with their arguments uh, and, and telling them to calm down and to be more rational doesn't help. You've got to honour the emotion of the person you're talking to and recognise that. And again, you know, they might, what they're, what, they're, what they're saying might not really be what they're feeling. They're trying to communicate something else. Uh, and you've got to try and work out what that is and, and give it some respect. So, How do you do you that know, in I, practice? What, what does it mean to honour their feelings in the moment? Well, I mean, I don't have to do this very much in politics, any, but, but often with, with people, basically if someone's shouting at you, the thing to do is not to speak in a really calm voice. So it's okay, calm down. Because all that does is de- devalue their feeling. You're basically saying it's, it, it's invalid to have the emotion you're having. So what you actually have to do is to go up to their level and say, I recognise what you're saying, I hear you, and I also know that's really annoying. You, have to, you actually almost have to shout back at them, hmm. mirror their feeling back at them so they know that they've been heard. So I think in politics, if somebody is re- has a real sense of the injustice of something, you have to kind of recognise that they've got a point, even if it's just their emotional response. So on, you know, at the moment, we're having a big argument in politics about the refugees from Ukraine. I don't think it's enough just to give a sort of... And people, you know, some people are very angry that, that the UK hasn't done enough yet. I think as of this week, we're about to start doing some really great things. But people have been arguing for two weeks that we aren't moving, aren't doing enough. And I think just to give a sort of rational 
practical, fact-based response to that is inappropriate. You have to recognise that people have a real sense of the of the injustice of what's happening with the refugees and how unfair it is that we're all comfortable here while there are people who are cold and traumatised in Eastern Europe and who, want, and who should be should be here so you have to honor the the emotion of the situation as much as engage uh rationally with the practicalities that is very helpful i think i'm just going to leave it on that really helpful thing and say danny kruger thank you so much for speaking to me on the sacred my great pleasure Well, what a thoughtful and lovely man Danny comes across as. Maybe it's my generation and my gender. This is a bit distressing. But I'm always slightly surprised when I come across people who seem to be genuinely not at all tortured. It might be that I am... I don't, I don't feel tortured, to be frank, to be clear. Uh, I generally feel quite peaceful. Um, but I do overthink and overanalyze, and I think a lot of people do. Um, and Danny just has the kind of steadiness, non-anxious presence of someone who doesn't seem at all tortured, which is just it's quite calming to be around, frankly. Um, I really liked his vision of this Burkean compassionate conservatism which I've spoken to other people about, this framing of a conservatism that is not about a libertarian sense of like the deepest moral harm you can do to someone is infringe on their freedoms, which is, I think, the kind of best version of libertarianism. There are libertarians who are very morally thought through and see it as the only way of preventing the harm we do to each other when we impinge on each other's freedoms at all, whether through kind of excessive government or taxation or whatever it is. I'm reminded that the Conservative Party, at least in the UK, holds together two very different wings, at least two, one of which is that libertarian, sometimes it gets called neoliberal impulse. And one of them is this more Burkean, sometimes it's been framed as compassionate conservatism, um, but it's really about rootedness, small group allegiances. It's not really individualistic. It sometimes gets called a sort of red Toryism and blue labor, which is the kind of equivalent on the left. They all kind of float around these ideas that actually it's our, it's our communities and our commitments and our responsibilities to each other where we find dignity and where we flourish. Um, and Danny explains that really, really well. It's always interesting to hear about someone becoming Christian in their 20s from, um, you know, not from that background. And it interests me that obviously it was about a personal relationship, as so many of these things are. We meet people who we feel drawn to and we want to be like, who um, offer us an insight into a different way of living that's appealing. But also that it was partly about the ideas, the sense that Christianity helped give some intellectual undergirding to some of the things he felt instinctively about what politics should be like. And then hearing him quite pointedly, actually, criticise conservatism when it's not underpinned by Christianity as snobbery and spivery. And I think he's really got a strong sense of some of the worries that certainly people of my generation and younger 
express about conservatism that it can be um, really about selfishness. And um, it was really interesting hearing him reflect on that. Finally, uh, it's really liberated me hearing how boring being a speechwriter is and that it's a slightly pointless job because I do think maybe it was one of the many, many things I thought I could have done with my life. And now I don't regret that anymore. Um, So thanks, Danny. And thank you for listening. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. Remember, sharing is caring, as my four-year-old says. So please do send this or another episode to a friend. Rate us on Apple Podcasts or my personal favourite, leave us a review. I really get a thrill when I see a new one pop up. Huge thanks to Abby Allison for research and production support and Emily Down for our visual identity. We are edited by Drew Hawley and our music is composed and arranged by Luke Stanley with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. The Sacred is a project of the think tank Theos and you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.